Welcome to the Eclectic Gamers Podcast. Today is Sunday, May 7th. It's episode 34. I'm Tony. And I'm Dennis. And we're joined by a very special guest this time around. Would you like to introduce yourself? Hey, uh, good morning. I'm Bowen, uh, Bowen Karens uh, from Salem, Massachusetts, and I am uh, I play pinball. And for those of you who probably heard of uh, Bowen, he is uh, seen as a pretty major pinball ambassador. Uh, I think for most of our listeners, they may know you for a lot of the tutorial videos that you do for the Professional Amateur Pinball Association. And in the show notes, for those that are interested, I have a link to those videos. I have a link to your Patreon for those that want to financially help support those efforts for you to continue to do those videos. And also a link to the Tilt Through podcast, of which you are one of the co-hosts. So uh, thank you so much for being on our show. Um, We cover a a mix of gaming, but we know most of our listeners are pinball oriented. So we're going to hit real heavy into pinball for this episode. I uh, didn't know if there was anything you wanted to plug or promote or talk about at the start here before we get going into the news, but the floor is yours. Um, not really. I, I just It's an honor to, to have the support from the Patreon backers. We have plenty of support at this point to continue making these videos. Um, I'll be traveling to Pittsburgh later this month to film. I'll be traveling to San Francisco to film in June. And... Um, it's it's been amazing. Uh, the the fact that we're able to continue making these um, is outstanding. I used to just ba- basically work in Pittsburgh every couple months, and that's how those videos were being made. And I just assumed that would be the end of it once I was no longer uh, able to travel there as often. Well, I, I'm really glad that it, that they have not stopped because they are ever so helpful to me. To at least when I lose, it's only my skill. It's not that I don't know what to do on the game anymore. <laughs> So they, they definitely come in handy and, uh, you have a interesting sense of humor. So they're, they're entertaining to watch as well. <laughs> interesting. Not, not a good sense of humor. Interesting. Sense of humor. <laughs> I, uh, that's the term that's used to describe me a lot or dry. I'm, I'm very dry on, on my extremely approach, so dry. I, I'm somewhat yes. dry. I'm revise that to somewhat dry. Um, Tony, do you have anything you want to, uh, summarize though, before we, we get rolling into the, uh, pinball topic? No, it's just been a pretty standard crazy week for me, so I I haven't had time to do much of anything other than I did start playing near Automata, and I'll talk about that at a later time because um this game has a deep story, like a seriously deep story, and I'm in the middle of it. I I haven't decided uh if it's as good as it's looking like it's going to be or if it's just a terrible terrible tease. Yeah. Yeah, I have a couple of video game things that we'll carry over to the next episode to talk about. I do want to mention a couple of things that kind of relate to the podcast, one more directly than the other. Uh, first is that one of our listeners, uh, Jake, wrote into us on Facebook. He heard our last episode and heard me mention my interest in trying to find a silver slugger, the Gottlieb early uh, System 3, uh, one of their street level games. Uh, it turns out he has one. So he sent a picture and he said that he's had at any given time, over 50 games in his collection. And it's actually his favorite from a gameplay standpoint. So I guess I'm not totally insane for being interested in a Gottlieb. Uh, He also uh, mentioned a title fight that was somewhat near us. Uh, Unfortunately, title fight isn't one that's interesting to me because the layout, I think it's, it's too easy to exploit the, uh, the loop in the upper right, but but uh, I am watching for a hoops or a silver slugger. So thank you, Jake, for uh, writing in and confirming that my analysis is uh, at least somewhat on target. 
Yeah, I'm a I'm a big fan of I'm a big fan of hoops. Uh, it's a much better game than it has any right to be, honestly. And uh, um, title fight is uh, a fun a fun layout. I, I think that uh, I often look at games from a, a point scoring and competition perspective, and a title fight turns out not to be nearly as good from that perspective. Although it is it is quite good from a uh, playfield layout and interesting shot perspective. Don, formerly of the Pinball Podcast, currently of the Link Cable Podcast, uh, agrees with you about hoops. He's he pushed me most on hoops, saying that uh, he thinks that that's the strongest of the six street level games that he's familiar with. So and uh, and hoops and uh, Silver Slugger, I think, are the only two of the street level that had John Trudeau involved on design. But I think hoops he left while it was in production. I think Norris took it over. So interesting little history there, but but. Okay, good. I'm, I'm okay. I'm, I'm keeping my eyes out, but I don't see him crop up much. Uh, the the other item is uh, Nick Dangerous. He was actually our very first interview we ever did last year, right after the 2016 Texas Pinball Festival. He has been out during doing a tour of the continental UX, uh, fixing EM machines. He's got a, a th- thread on Pinside that's running as a sort of travel blog. He's putting in lots of fun uh, photos. He's using a lot of humor and doing these little write-ups of these visits where he's going and he's restoring these EM or, or teaching people how to fix their EM machines that they're, so that they're functional and can be played. Um, and unlike a lot of threads on Pinside, this one's actually very, very positive. There's no negativity with it. Uh, so I have a link in the show notes directly to the thread. So anyone who wants to follow along with, with uh, Nick's adventures can do so. So let's move to the productivity portion of the podcast and let's go on into pinball. And we got a few news things to hit on and we're going to have some interesting discussions with Bowen, but I want to go ahead and tear through the news first since some people shockingly might only listen to us, which would probably be a huge mistake. But if we're your only (laughs) source for pinball news, let me go ahead and, uh, and do what I can here really, really quickly. Uh, Skit B, the company, quote unquote, that was behind the Predator pinball fiasco. There have been two new legal hearings that have happened. One has involved uh, Kevin Kulix, uh, who was the owner operator of Skit B, his wife, and one involves a Virtua Pin, which was contracted to make the cabinets for the job. I have links to both audios of those hearings in the show notes. The one with the wife is mostly about the house and the photo equipment that she possesses and uh, interest in exploring whether or not the predator money went towards acquiring those things. I know that the trustee's office very much thinks they have evidence of a paper trail that the house was bought with that money. And it seems that based off the hearing that I, I have listened to, that the wife isn't contesting that that's how it looks. And it seems more that she's trying to find a way to come up with money to keep the house rather than have to give the house over to the estate. The virtual pin hearing was more about the default judgment. They had not shown up to court, so they received a default judgment that they had to turn over a CNC machine, which is used to cut cabinets. This was a hearing where virtual pin asked for that default judgment to be set aside and their lawyer attempted to excuse why he was derelict in actually getting uh, getting to court on time. The judge did a go did a, did agree to set aside the default judgment. The trustee gets a small payment of money because their time was wasted, basically having to deal with this restoration of the ability to defend themselves. But the case will get to move forward, so Virtual Pin will be allowed to present its evidence as to why the CNC machine is legit and doesn't belong to Skip B. So that's what's going on with that. 
Uh, Big Lebowski, minor update there. The contract manufacturer Ara and Dutch Pinball had yet another meeting just this last Friday. Dutch indicated there was no resolution yet, but they're continuing to talk and they're trying to work something out. Separate from that, but what was revealed the same day is the lead and I believe only software engineer who was working for Dutch Pinball and programming the game has listed on LinkedIn. They no longer work for Dutch Pinball and they've started a new job. So some people are wondering if that means there won't be any additional code updates. No idea. I haven't seen any comments. Dutch has not weighed in on that. It's someone else was just looking into it because they wondered yeah, uh, why there hasn't been a code update since an, the initial run started. But others argue that the game is fully programmed, so it's not a big deal. Now, Bowen, you've got a tutorial coming up on Lebowski, don't you? Uh, you have uh, you have revealed information that is not public uh, yet, uh, but uh, yes. Really? Because I found it on a public site, so. Uh, well, uh, it wasn't from, if it was for me, I, I'm... Uh, I, I screwed up. <laughs> no, it wasn't. It wasn't. I found it in a forum. Okay. Um, there, there were there there were a, a a number of people who do know this because it was voted on by the Patreon backers. Uh, so I said I was uh, traveling to San Francisco in June, and uh, I will be filming the Big Lebowski machine at the Alamo Draft House in San Francisco, uh, as voted by the backers. So I'm excited. Uh, I have played Lebowski quite a bit, including the new code, and I do feel it is um, uh, quite complete as far as uh, code goes. Um, there are there are certain things, of course, that uh, uh, Dutch, in, in its original design, was thinking about doing, like having a bowling mode where you just play bowling the whole game instead of playing pinball, uh, which which isn't programmed, but I, I would not expect that. It seems like a, a bonus thing to throw in at the last minute. Um I haven't got the wizard yet, uh, so I can't uh, vouch for its quality or its existence. Uh, but uh, it's the, the detail and the amount of things that are in that game is, is quite good. And uh, considering it's the very first game from very first full game from them, it feels feels nice, and it's, it's nice to flip. And the rules are great. I've heard I've heard a lot of people talking about that, barring their issues that. With their construction, the actual game itself's not bad at all. I, I enjoyed playing it every time I play it, so uh, I, I I stay away from any of these uh, financial it, any of the drama things uh, that uh, that are going on. I try not to I, I try not to, to, to learn too much about them, lest people ask me what I know, uh, because then I can just say I know nothing and uh, let's let's <laughs> move on. You know, that's probably an approach we should have taken. I have fallen into a legal morass on, tra- <laughs> on tracking. On, I mean, I have to run and follow the, the legal documentation on Zidware, Skitbee, and I, I'm hope, hopefully not Dutch. So far, Dutch has been much much simpler because there's nothing legal going on right now. It's just negotiation. So. Oh, I thought you were saying that you just didn't want to read it because it wasn't in English. Oh no, 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 but I won't teach myself Dutch. I, I had a hard enough time with Spanish. I, I ain't going any further in languages. So, okay. So that's it on production. Uh, well, no, we do have one more production thing, a little quick quickie. Apparently total annihilation, uh, which is, as we've mentioned, is going to be produced by spooky pinball. Uh, that's uh, Scott uh, Dasani, I believe is how his name's pronounced his uh, total annihilation. Ugh. Total Annihilation game, which Tony and I played at Texas Pinball Festival, and we both really, really liked it quite a bit. Um, as you see, uh, you know, single level—that's what that Silver Slugger hoop stuff. That I'm just a sucker for single level. 
but uh, it's getting renamed. It's going to be Total Nuclear Annihilation. I guess that was indicated on the latest Spooky Pinball podcast. And it sounds like Atari has renewed their trademark on Total Annihilation, which is a video game. And so probably to avoid any sort of risk of, of issue, they just went ahead and renamed it at this time. And it fits with the theme because you're destroying nuclear reactors is sort of the plot. So a little bit of a change there. I'm fine with that. And I actually kind of hope the Atari thing means that they're making a new Total Annihilation because that game was awesome. <laughs> I mean, they I mean, they do have because there, there's the Total Annihilation uh, um like spinoff game that they they kickstarted a couple of years ago uh but i don't well, know when that, i first heard about the pinball machine i thought he was going I thought, I thought it was going to be based off of the real-time strategy game i just assumed it um i wasn't a big ta player though so it, it wasn't a big deal to me when i found out it was an original theme uh last news item that i have is just uh ifpa international flipper pinball association announced that they're doing something called challenge matches in 2018 uh not a lot of info yet the the base outline is that there wouldn't be a fee associated with it uh you don't have the 30-day calendar submission requirement it's not for whopper points it's just for rating but it'll let you challenge another person head to head in a best of seven game series. So it seems like a, from what I understand, it's a, it's a way that they're trying to get the rating to be used a little more and offer like if people like to play dollar games and stuff, maybe converting that into something that's actually submitted. Uh, you know, I don't know, given it's not worth whoppers, if there's going to be a high volume of submissions on that or not. Time will tell. Yeah. We'll see what happens. I'm not, I don't, it's not something that interests me. So yeah, I, I could, you know, I don't know. I could care. I, I could see doing it if I, you know, if, if just for the fun of it, maybe trying it out, but I don't, I don't think, uh, you know, where I'm rated against other players is kind of already determined by the tournaments I play. So I don't think that's going to really sway it very much on the uh, total annihilation front. Um, Bowen, have you played total annihilation? I have been itching to play total annihilation for uh, many months, having seen some video of it and uh, some live streams, and I just never end up in the same place as the game. Uh, hopefully, I'll end up in Chicago soon and be able to play it or uh, just get get it produced. It really looks outstanding. Uh, and the, the action of that top area and the inline drops for the locks, it's it's just clever. Oh, that, that locks I, thing is amazing. I, um, I don't have a sense of how it comes together strategically to know whether there's, there's depth to the rules or you're just trying to do, do that thing as many times as you can. But that, that's not, that doesn't make it bad. I mean, Barracora is a great game, but you, you're, you don't have 17 different things to do. You don't have to have a huge pile of variety for a game to be awesome. That's because those end lines up at the top require all mental capacity so you can try and light the four, five, six. yeah all right let's go ahead and uh, go into our discussion topics then because it was a pretty light uh, news week in pinball for once which is good um and one of the topics i thought is uh, you of course are are well well known for uh being participant in competitive pinball and this is sort of driven by a conversation i had with one of our local area kansas city players and that was what can folks do at the local level to help increase the popularity of competitive pinball, you know, not involving any of the international uh, or national organizations like Papa, just like, I want to grow the scene. What do we do? And this was sort of driven by last summer. We, we had someone, he tried to run a selfie tournament and we didn't Mm -hmm. get any new players involved in it. And 
you know, we sort of discussed, you know, what, what went wrong? Could we have advertised it better? Some of the hardcore local players weren't really big fans of the selfie concept. So what was planned to be a three month thing only happened one month and then it just sort of pittered out. And so, you know, you've been, you've been in this for a long time though. So, uh, what what do you what do you think what what can what can people like us do if we want to try and get more new people involved into the competitive pinball scene? So I think one of the, one of the, the stories I would tell about this is uh, how the New England Pinball League has grown. Uh, it's been running now for about five years, and a couple of things that the league was built on have uh, have made it possible to grow to the point where we we now have uh, approximately two hundred fifty players. And um, the the first big concept is uh, almost all of these concepts are stolen directly from the Pittsburgh Pinball League, which has been running even longer and has about the same size. Uh, one of those is that you you take the, the the money that someone contributes to a league and you put it towards multiple purposes rather than just putting it as prize money for the the top players in the league. I think that. The impression that a lot of new players get when they come to pinball is that the elite players, the, the top players, whoever the, the, the best players in the league are, that they're going to take their entry fee and hand it over to those players. And, and they're reluctant to even join a league because of that. Uh, so either having leagues that are free with no prize money at all or having leagues that are uh, equal contributing leagues. So in our league, we have multiple divisions. We now have A, B, C, and D. When we started, we had A, B, and C. And one of the tenets was that the prize money in A and B and C is identical. So every person will have an eligibility to be in one of those divisions at the end of the season with a chance to play for a prize. And the prize in C and the prize in A, the trophy in C and the trophy in A, they are the same. Uh, And I think that gives a flavor to someone who's never played before to know, okay, we care about new players. We care about people who are coming in who are not going to be the best player in the league. Uh, And it's grown. It's grown a lot. Uh, I don't know if that personally was responsible for that. We also take one-third of the money that would be going to prizes and put it into a party fund. So that the, the finale of the league is not just a, a prize fest to, to chase the, to the victory, but it also becomes this, this nice event with free food and uh, I don't know if, where, where you would have your league, but uh, drinks. Um, the other thing that worked very well for our league that, again, we stole from Pittsburgh is the ability to run the league at multiple locations. And you may have one location. I don't know how many locations are in Kansas City. I know about the... Uh, what, 504 Club, is it? Your club. 403. 403, sorry. No, it's all right. 504 is the uh, 504 is from high speed. It's the, uh, it's the car, the, the police car. Sorry. Mm. Um, so one of, the, one of the things that's happened with our league is we've been able to encourage new locations to open to have more pinball machines because they can become league hosts. And our players choose one location to go to each week. Some people play in Cambridge. Some people play in Providence. Because we're in New England, we actually have now nine locations all over New England that have grown out from uh, the first season we had three locations. 
And that allows you to have this expanding capability to where you, you don't have a capacity that you might have at, uh, at 403 to say, all right, we can have a league, but we can only have this many people. You're at that point limiting how big your scene can get. Uh, and I think that the Pittsburgh model of having multiple places to play and multiple days of the week to do it gives flexibility. It gives, uh, it gives lots of options for people. Uh, and lastly, um, we use a free software that's been provided by PAPA and FSPA called the uh, PAPA League Manager. And uh, that will run your league. It gives people standings. It gives people badges. It gives people uh, all sorts of uh, little trinkets to go on so they can see their scores. They can see their progress. And uh, Papa provides uh, that service completely for free for any league to join. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, I didn't even know about that. That's uh... Uh, that, that website is league.papa.org. And um, there's, I think, maybe... 15 leagues around the country that are, that are using it. I'm not sure about internationally, but uh, it's uh, quite useful. And it allows us to run match play leagues and then have all the standings immediately recorded and updated. Even though we have 250 players, we get we get instant updates. It's great. Wow. Yeah, our, our league uh, our league scene has been a... I mean, we, we do have multiple locations for, for pinball, which is good in the area. Um, and the issue is all the leagues though, that have happened have always cropped up around a specific location. So there's been a, like a four Oh three league. And then there's been like a nubs pub league that run on different days in case people want to attend both of them. Uh, but the times have always been, at least in all the cases for me, I've never actually participated in any of the Kansas city leagues because they all start so late at night that it's just, for me, it's just not practical. Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas the tournaments are on weekends and these are always on weekdays and they start like at eight thirty PM and it's just with my work schedule, I can't do it. But, um, I like this idea of, uh, moving it around uh, about using the different locations. Cause that's something we actually, ha- I mean, we do, we have uh, on the Kansas side, we have three major locations where the, so uh, just, the just to be, just to be as specific as possible. We don't move it around. We okay. use all the locations. So a player in our league can go to one location on Monday night, one week, and then the next week, they can go to a different location on Wednesday night and have both of those count as their weeks. We play for eight weeks, and a player's bottom two weeks are dropped. So you only have to actually show up for six weeks out of eight in order to, uh, to be a full, a full participant and be eligible for the finals. Oh, so they can go to any of, that, of, a, of those various locations, and that'll count as their one week? That's right. And so in your case, if you say, well, I've got games at my house, um, I'll just have my own league night on Tuesday and people <laughs> can come to me. And that's how we, we have, uh, I think, four different private homes as locations. And I want to say five different public locations, but I could be wrong about that. I don't quite have the number. That's good. I mean, I don't, I don't even know how many places our league plays. That's how big it is. I'd never even thought about using private residences as part of a league night. I mean, I just, my mind was just kind of like a bowling league in my mind. I just, oh, league is this, league is that. But I, I mean, that makes, and, and the flexibility of that, I can see where that really would make things a lot easier to run a league, especially a large league compared to trying to fit, you know, 50, 60, 70 people somewhere. Right. And that's that you, even if your league, let's say that you ran a league at uh, 403 and it turns out to be super successful. And you have more people than you can cram because that's what's going to happen. If you're if you're seen as successful and growing, that will happen eventually. Uh, what then? 
you either have to push half those people to a different night or you have to push them to a different place. And uh, again, I, I'm not going to say that, that we did this because we're completely stealing the concept from, from, the, uh, uh, from the Pittsburgh Pinball League originally. Well, it sounds like a good setup overall. I mean, it's something that I can definitely see why it would work as well as it seems to work. I mean, it sounds like both, I mean, both have such huge leagues. And I think that's been what's always hurt us in this area is our leagues have been small. And while we might get big tournament player turnouts, we don't get big league player turnouts. Right. And I think that, I think that a new player is much less likely to want to join a tournament as their first inroad. Unless it's a tournament that they know that they can get a high value out of, uh, so a lot of qualifying tournaments or three strikes tournaments, a brand new player uh, might end up feeling frustrated by that because they're eliminated fairly quickly, and then they they look around and they see like this thing's still going to go on for another six hours and I'm already out. Uh, I guess I suck. <laughs> Goodbye. Yeah, yeah. Ball's not right. for that, me. That's been my biggest. That's been my biggest issue with tournaments is, especially when I was first starting. I think that, and, and you look at, like, I run Pinburg, or I helped to run Pinburg also. One of the things we wanted to do at, in Pinburg is to give the lowest players in the tournament the same experience as the highest players in the tournament. So Pinburg basically is a league season run in a weekend, but everybody continues to play. No matter how good or bad you're doing, the, the tournament goes on, where in a three strikes format or even the Papa qualifying format, most of the people who show up for Papa, they play, then a scoreboard tells them they suck, and they go home sad. Um, it's, uh, it's the nature of the beast because of how many people come through. And the only way to get around that is to increase the volume of the number of machines you have available. At location play, you can't do that. You've got some, some cap on how many games this money, as many games as there are at 403. There's only so many. And that tells you how many people you can fit in there. Uh, and then you want to do better than that, you have to find other places. Let's see. So let's see. New England Pinball League. We have three locations in New Hampshire, two in Massachusetts, one in Connecticut, one in Rhode Island, uh, two in Maine, and one in Vermont. So there are now 10 different league locations in, in New England Pinball League. Um, and it, it works. It really has worked way better than I thought it would. And the, the, the play is friendly. It's very fun. Um, the only problem we have now is that, um, unfortunately, because of the closure of the fantastic Pinball Wizard Arcade in Pelham, New Hampshire, we no longer have a location that we can bring everybody to play together for finals. We used to just invite everyone, but um, now we have to figure out how to do finals, and I don't think we've solved that problem completely yet. Yeah, I, we we shared that closure because it was. Uh, I think a lot of people were surprised when they when they saw that. Probably just because pinball's been growing so much, but I I guess there were some extenuating circumstances that were involved there. So yeah, it's a it's a, it's it's completely a uh, location um, lease issue, and not anything to do with the success of the. Success of the location. They were they were successful. Okay. Well, yeah, that, uh, this has a, a lot of ideas that are new to me in terms of uh, ways to possibly structure leagues. 
Um, yeah, in terms of locations in this area, we've got uh, three on the Kansas side that would be seen as quote unquote high quality. Uh, one's opening up here very soon on the Missouri side of the border. Uh, and there are arguably a couple other locations with sufficient machines that if you want to just do public venues, all the t- it's real weird in Kansas City. All the all the tournaments take place on the Kansas side, but it makes a weird split on the state level because <laughs> all the Kansas City, Missouri players all play in Kansas. So they're all in the Kansas state. And then the Missouri tournaments are all dominated by players from like St. Louis and Columbia. Yeah, and stuff. It's like the Columbia state Lewis Eastern corridor controls oh, Missouri. Man. And so the KCMO folks play on the Kansas side. They play on, they play on the Kansas side on purpose. Oh, geez. oh sure. Sure. Uh, well, that's, we that's, we, that's, we that's, welcome that's, them that's, with, we welcome them with open arms. Sure. No, I just, it's just, it, you, it, it tells you that uh, some sort of regional regional decision might have been uh, anyway. Uh, that's, it, yeah, that's, no, that's it, it raises some interesting questions, but 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 beyond the scope of of today's discussion and uh, some of the stuff like on the uh, making everyone even on the the lower uh, tiers feel welcome. That's something that I we've seen some I think some some evidentiary based results on the tournament side. We have two regular monthly tournaments that happen in the Kansas City area. There's the 403 one that we've talked about. There's also a location at Pizza West. Those tournaments are run almost identical in terms of fee to get in, uh, head-to-head, uh, double elimination sort of stuff. But the big difference is at Pizza West, that operator takes all the entry fees and he redistributes it so the top half of the field gets at least their money back. Oh, okay, good. Whereas uh, 403 does a standard payout to the top one, two, and three. And I did an analysis last year, or at the start of this year, I guess, using the 2016 figures, and found that the average number of people who are not were not yet uh, having five games in on IFPA, so quote unquote new players, uh, that there was a significantly higher count that went to the Pizza West tournaments versus the 403 tournaments. And the only discernible difference I know of is that payout structure. So I thought that that does make a difference where it feels like. Because I never, I never win money at 403. I never have. But at Pizza West, I've won my money back. I can get in the top half of the field sometimes. That I think is a, a real, a real lesson that uh, if you if you look at who plays pinball, there are a lot more of I don't want to say of you, because but the way you've described yourself, there's a lot more of you than there are of me. And frankly, I'm going to have a great time at any pinball tournament. I don't care what format you use. I'm going to enjoy it. And then maybe I'll complain about it on its format online or something. I don't know. But uh, if I don't give you a good experience, you might not come back. Uh, and, and the hundreds of other yous might not come back. And, and that, that is, I think, very critical to, uh, to, to growing competitive pinball. Uh, you have to provide quality experiences for all players. And um, double elimination, for example... I would rather see more of what's called a Swiss system where everybody gets the same number of matches. And then at the end, you just say, okay, we're done. And the best records win the prizes. Uh, if you have enough machines, like at 403, for example, to run an entire round at once, then you don't really need to eliminate anyone. Uh, and so it is at Pinburg. At Pinburg, we have 300 pinball machines in the tournament. So that we can support 800 players. And, and your point's well taken. Yeah, there. Though I am a super special snowflake, so I don't. Uh, <laughs> so no one is quite like me. But 
uh, I think that that leads to a good transition here to a, a next pinball topic I wanted to go over uh, with your point uh, that you would enjoy a tournament no matter what. But what if the pinball machines are not good machines for competition? So I wanted to talk a little bit about what, what do you guys think makes for a good and a bad pinball machine in, a, in the sense of competition, not home ownership or just playing for fun, but actual what makes a good pin for competition purposes? Important to me is uh, first that the scoring is fair. There isn't some crazy BS that's going to happen. Um, second, that the scoring is not one-dimensional. So the best example of this is Data East Star Wars. You will never see Data East Star Wars at a major tournament because the strategy comes down to looping a simple ramp as many times as you can for huge scores. I guess there's a new version of the Star Wars software now that uh, tries to rebalance that and does a much better job of making a fun fun machine. Yeah, chat H code, yeah. If a game is so one-dimensional that no one would want to play it or watch it, it's not going to make for a very good competitive game. Um, and uh, I think that, for me, there are two more categories to make it a, a great game instead of just uh, just one uh, a good game. One is to have multiple dimensions of strategy where one can try for, say, a, a, a medium score or high score by pursuing different goals. So an example of this is World Cup Soccer where... If you need to get a good score, you can go for multi-balls. If you need to get an amazing score, you change your mind and you start going for cities because getting to the final match is worth a ton, but it's a risk-reward strategy. And last, uh, having games that have non-linear scoring is really important um, to making things interesting. So an example of this is uh, Creature from the Black Lagoon has these ridiculously high jackpots and super jackpots. That is good because if you get a player to that point where they're near the jackpot, it ramps up the tension. The player feels it differently because they know that they're near something big and important. And when it does come, it's a big moment for the player, for the viewer, for the commentators, for everybody. Where if you're playing a game that's like, uh, Monopoly is a good example of a game that's pretty linear. If you're playing Monopoly, not too much different happens in multiball. The jackpot is a million. Now you relight the jackpot. It's a million again. And the only big thing that happens in Monopoly is if anybody gets land grab, which is the wizard. But besides that, it's mostly just grinding away at uh, a reasonable amount of points over and over again. And there are no big moments. Most recent great example of this is... Uh, Metallica with the crank it up modes and that is a spectacularly programmed game because you get those big moments uh, much more regularly than almost any other game I, I can recall. Yeah, I find games with a lot of like just like chopping wood where you just keep where you see the same shot being made over and over and over again. I like uh, case in point at the tournament yesterday, uh, Rob Zombie. Uh, really beautiful Rob Zombie score got put up, but it was literally just chopping wood on the same shot. And it was like an incredibly long ball, but it wasn't exciting to watch. And I don't know how much you could really consider it be, to be fun because you're just shooting the same shot over and over and over and over again. I think stuff like that is really drags down a game from both a player perspective and a watcher perspective. And with how big pinball's getting on like Twitch and stuff, 
and how many tournaments we're seeing out there. I think the actual watchability of pinball is something that's becoming a lot more important than it was four, five, ten years ago. I agree with that. Yeah, I, I that that's a good point on that one. Um, yeah, and I hate those. Uh, yeah, that that chopping description, that wood chopping, which uh, you know, party zone was is a case in point for me. We had a party zone on location in tournament for a long time, and oh gosh, it was just painful because it's just those two ramps alternating those two ramps. Um, I'm, I'm really big into for competitive purposes, things where there's a risk reward and I can take different strategies. So attack from Mars, for example, is one I really like in competition, uh, even though everyone knows it, uh, because you, you know, there are multiple options. So I do what I consider a very beginner strategy and I only attack saucers. That's what I do because it's a risky shot, but I will get rewarded if I'm successful. You fool. That's what I do, man. It's what I do. I attack the saucers it, and you're judging me. Oh, I, I was in circuit final uh, in the first round and I attacked saucers to survive uh, because nothing else was working. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, we, as a four player game of top players, we had, we went through two balls and the first place was 250 million. Oh, wow. And uh, I was up as player one, having made no progress at all. And I'm like, um, okay. <laughs> uh, and I survived through saucers. I just had to not be last. But uh, you're absolutely right. That um, Attack is a great example of a game with uh, uh, multiple options. And I think that one of the other things it does really well, which I didn't mention before, it, and you mentioned Twitch and, and the viewer experience, is that these strategies need to be explainable in a short amount of time to new to new people who barely know pinball at all so that they can have a good viewer experience uh, and some of these big scoring strategies on games are, are complicated and layered in ways that don't make sense to players uh, or viewers but others like attack for mars it does make sense there there's clear visible progress and uh, it's it's this very difficult delicate balance that the the designers and programmers have to go through to make these games that are good for all levels of play and still have interesting decisions to make. I'm, I, I'm, envi- I'm not envious, but I'm amazed that they can pull this off on a regular basis with new and interesting rules. And I was wondering, do you think that the whole Twitch thing <clears throat> will be a something that affects more designers as things go on as it becomes something that is much more actually watchable than just sitting there watching over somebody's shoulder that they'll lay things out out and or make adjustments to code in such a way that will make it so it's a bit more um accessible uh to people who are just watching i don't think so because uh, i think that the their their market of locations and uh, private collectors is not necessarily the same market. And maybe there'll be a, there would be a shift. If there was some kind of incredible growth in a further incredible growth in the, the size of the player base for competition. I think that the, the move towards uh, screen displays above dot matrix displays is uh, is a plus in a couple of ways. One that's subtle is that, um, uh, some broadcasters may be able to get the direct feed off of those displays and use them as part of their their inlays. Uh, like uh, Carl D'Angelo has done for Hobbit, he has the, the actual feed off of that uh, mini book thing uh, on his on his Twitch when he when he broadcasts. 
Um, even the, the, the inline displays, like the one that Alien has, that means that now someone watching just the top-down camera can still see the scores. They can see the progress. They can see all of that without having to manage the, the multiple screen effect that, that Pinball already has. And it's good for players, too, because they don't have to look up all the time to see what's going on. They can keep their eye much more on the ball than they would otherwise. Yeah, I found that with a lot of the, like, especially the, uh, uh, like, full throttle and stuff that had that actual screen in the play field and stuff, it it made the game feel completely different because I wasn't having to look up. Because I know, like, on Jurassic Park, I've missed that shoot the uh, dinosaur, that velociraptor shot so many times because I just don't see it or don't notice it. Mm Mm-hmm. The, the ability to have, have be able to see that kind of stuff w- without having to look up as much is really a real plus to me as a player. Yeah, like, for example, um, I, I, one of the videos for Alien shows the, the tilt warning animation. And it is, I, I, the, I haven't played Alien yet, but it, it looks like the best tilt warning I've ever seen. Like, this, the display that's right in the middle of the game just kind of lights up red, like, warning you, like, a that that the ship is about to explode uh and uh yeah yeah you get the the instant feedback that tells you how many warnings you have left and and it's right there right in front of you it's 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 immersive and that's a thing that i think is necessary to 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 continue bringing in new players like i'm i've talked to uh mark steinman who runs uh runs papa uh and replay fx recently about uh what types of innovations there are because in the end the, the display isn't really an innovation in gameplay. It's an innovation in, in information. Uh, so I, I wonder if, if any of these new technologies are going to carry over into innovations in gameplay, something like we saw with pinball 2000 or uh, some other mechanism that allows the play of the game to change as a result of new technology. And that is what I see that that needs to happen for there to be like a new super revolution in pinball growth, perhaps. Um, and competitive competitive play is great, and it's it's grown the game, and I love it. But um, it's still the same game we've been playing since 1990, basically, and even before that. I got, there aren't really very many changes in the way you play pinball since Funhouse, for example. Yeah. Um, so speaking of, uh, you know, we've been, we were focusing here on, on games in particular, but, and, and competition, but, uh, locations, uh, Bowen, what, what are your thoughts on what, what makes for a good, unique pinball location, uh, versus what might be just seen as a more pedestrian, uh, location or mundane, uh, because most people aren't going to buy pinball machines. They're going to encounter them out on the wild, but, but just sort of what, what triggers that? And is like, this is, this is a special place for pinball versus just, oh, it's a place that has pinball. Oh, geez, there's such, uh, so many answers to that. Um, my, the first thing that came to mind is that it, it should be tucked into a mountain in, in Colorado uh, and have games from 1960 to today. But, uh, <laughs> I'm, thinking of, I'm thinking very specifically of Lions, Lions Classic, which is one of the greatest arcades I've ever played in. I was going to ask, why, why a mountain? Is that just to prevent cab fade or, or what? <laughs> uh, I don't know. It just, it just looks good. Like You've you got to make the trek to, to get there. Just ski down, ski down, and at the end is hot dogging, waiting for you. That would be nice. That would be very nice. 
Um, yeah, I, I, some mountains don't have pinball machines. I, I have to go to Park City, Utah, and there aren't. There's no pinball there. You think with all these, all these uh, ski people that they would at least have uh, a wipeout. Um, they definitely don't have that, thankfully, and they don't have hot dogging either. Mm-hmm. Ah, fools, all fools. No, um, I don't know. I think that um, the the really important part of that is the the operator, uh, and you think about some of the best locations in the country, like Lions Classic, like 82, like, uh, like Pinball Wizard, like um, all, of the, all of these places are places where an operator has put in the dramatic amount of effort and time to make the thing theirs. And that also means that uh, the, the game selection at those locations doesn't have to be some specific set that is my dream set it should be that person's dream set so the games are free gold watch are not going to be the same games that that are at 82 or at lions or at um i'm just trying to think of all of the other great locations that there's so many locations now that i haven't played at more more locations that look great uh and it's it's so much work that that person or people put in to make that place theirs that when you say that that most of the people who play pinball are encountering it on locations those operators are the ones that are really driving the growth of pinball to me that you look you think about what the growth is in portland and the growth in portland and the growth in seattle have come from operators and locations and growing a scene place by place and it's that. And yeah, I think tournaments are a part of that. And competitive play is a part of that. But the real core of that is those dedicated people who decide to, to start new locations or to take a location that has been decrepit and turn it around. Uh, I can give you a bunch of examples right up, right here if you want me to go on forever about this. Oh, no, it's, it's a, that's a good point in terms of, and that's what we've seen in our area as well. You know, 403's reputation, uh, Pizza West and the recently opened Nubs Pub, uh, which has the same operator servicing and providing those machines. Uh, the location that's going to be opening up here soon in, in Kansas City, the unifying thing that all of those had going for them is that uh, the the operators and owners and their collaborations in terms of the the facility and the machines have been such that they're all different. They all feel different. They all offer a, a different sort of service when you go in uh, and the machines are well-maintained. And that's why, at least for those that, that regularly play in our area, those, if those operators are the ones involved, people get very excited. And it's just because they know it's going to, it's going to be a quality experience and you don't expect to go and necessarily, you know, you don't see a lot of the same machines. Occasionally you will, you know, we might have a Ghostbusters at two locations, for example, but by and large, it's, yeah, (laughs) by and large, it's just, uh, it's, it's, that's what we've seen, at least in our area. Uh, we're, we're a smaller, smaller area, but, uh, that seems to be what's working and we're seeing growth in our area in terms of, uh, more locations willing to put it, put them in place. So it's exciting exciting for me because I can't afford to buy all this stuff. Yeah. And this is, this is also a major shift in the way things were from the nineties because uh, pinball was, there were more pinball machines being sold in the nineties than now, but they were being sold to uh, lots of locations and operators that didn't necessarily care about the quality or setup of the games. 
So there were a lot more Twilight Zones than there are uh, Ghostbusters. But I would say on average, if you encountered a Twilight Zone in the wild in 1995, you were unlikely to play one that, that felt right. Because you were playing one that someone had just set up and they come to collect the coin box every couple of weeks and that they don't necessarily do the maintenance for most of them. Now, you get these places and, and having, having been to, to Logan Arcade and C-Bar and Flip Flip and 82 and Free Gold Watch and uh, um, now like Flat Top Johnny's in Boston, it's, it's all these places where there's so much care by a particular individual or a small set of individuals to make that location theirs and to give them, whether it's their dream or what, who knows, but, but those people, they need like lots of massage gift certificates or something because they're (laughs) the reason, they're the reason we've got pinball. Yeah. I've noticed the, uh, just the difference in, cause I've got a bar and grill nearby that always has a pinball machine in it. And it has no care taken. I They had a hook in there for a while that the left flipper didn't work for like a month. It was just dead. And then I came in one day and it was gone and had been replaced by South Park. And uh, the next week I came in and the, it was doing the ball, uh, ball detect problem issue so and it had that ball to detect problem up for about three weeks so i mean you can tell when there's a difference between someone who really cares and pours their time into it and with someone else who is just like ah, whatever and i I think um competitive play in leagues can feed back onto that and turn a turn a location that might not be a very high quality into one that is by um giving them business but also saying hey hey look you'll get even more business if if this gets fixed and that gets fixed um like uh, bar leagues that happen on Monday, Tuesday, or Wednesday nights, you're getting a lot of people into a location that, that might otherwise not have very many uh, people coming through it on on a day. And uh, if the location then says, hey, we do better when we have working games or new games, then that becomes a thing and, and it snowballs. Awesome. Okay. Well, let's hop over to uh, what I've so uh, blandly titled New Pins Roundup, where uh, we were going to go ahead and just talk about some of the machines that are kind of out or are about to come out, but have at least a number of, of test units. So people have been able to try them out and just sort of get some some of your thoughts, Bowen, on, on them. Batman 66. Played it? I have played it, and I'm impressed. Um, it, it flips really well. Uh, the rules are clever. I like the uh, the bat phone concepts as the way to start modes i like the um the the variant on bat the original batman's uh, multiplier where you still earn multipliers but the first one you earn is 2x then you earn a 3x if you get a second one so it presents an entirely new risk reward where the biggest you can make something is 6x now but do you want to wait for it because you may not even get the chance to to put a 6x on something uh and the longer you play your turn, the, the more opportunity there is. Uh, I haven't played uh, the updated code with the uh, the bat signal multiball, so I can't speak to where it is right now. But I had I had fun playing the one I played at uh, Pinball Wizard Arcade, and I played it earlier than that at uh, Ship Ahoy in Portland, Oregon. Yeah, I haven't played the the latest code either. I, I got to do the the prior update. We have a area person who won one as part of the one of the pinball charities and invited a bunch of us over. 
and yeah, it was really cool. I liked it a lot more than the dark Knight. Um, and I love that risk reward with that Gordon shot before you want to cash in on the phone. I was terrible at it, but I, I like the idea of it. Uh, I think it'll be really, I think it'll be really special once they get those minor villains coded into the system too. Cause I think, yeah, the minor villains that. look, look great. I mean, I'm an, I'm like, I want to pick shame. I just want to pick shame yeah. over <laughs> and over again. <laughs> book, bookworm. It's got to be the bookworm. Uh, Aerosmith. Um, I've only played a pro. Uh, I've, I've enjoyed it. I, I definitely get that, that kiss layout vibe, but, uh, have, have you got any time in yet on Aerosmith? Uh, yeah, I've played Aerosmith, uh, a little bit at, uh, Papa headquarters and at, uh, flat top Johnny's and at quarter world and, uh, at, uh, eight bit arcade in Seattle. Um, it so once is or twice. a couple times. <laughs> it's um, it's a, it's definitely got the got this a similar layout to Kiss, although I do, I feel like the shots are in different places, and and some of the shots are a lot harder. Like that center ramp is, it feels like it ought to be this Kiss ramp, but then it's not. Um, I think that uh, the the rules are are interesting. There's a little bit of a scoring imbalance, and Batman sixty six too has the same has some scoring imbalances that um, hopefully will get worked out in the long term, and I think they will. But it, it leads you to doing things in a particular order on, um, on Aerosmith. And that was the same. Aerosmith, actually, to me, is most similar to Star Trek in its rules. Uh, that, and its layout is Kiss, but Aerosmith has this uh, crank it up. And you think, it, you, think it's, you think it's crank it up like Metallica, but no, it's, it's like Away Team on Star Trek. And... There are certain modes where the away team or the uh, the crank it up end up being worth a crap load of points, um, and it presents a, a very clear path through the initial game if you want to get a, a decent score going. The toy box effect is really cool, um, and I like that there's some some flying ball stuff going on. That's always fun. It reminds me a little bit of the uh, the kicker from. Uh, NBA, when you shoot the free throw in NBA and it kicks it up into the into the basket, it's a, it's a similar type of kicker, and that that's that's not easy to get right. And it looks like they they've got it working very well. I like that option to uh, cash in or out on that ball like Mustang style with the multi ball for the toy box. Yeah, it's it's nice, and I think that um, there are still some variations on the rules, uh, though it's it's. My when I play a game like that, often what I'm trying to figure out is okay. Well, where is this from, and where is that from? And uh, I, I, it's it. It must be difficult to have complete innovation in the game at this point because how uh, how long have we had these games? And everything's kind of been tried at some point where you say, okay, this these this multi ball rule is carried over from Mustang, and this oh this two X thing is the same as the snake, and oh this crank it up. That's just. Uh, away team but just even to mix those ideas into a working thing is nice and aerosmith has a different variety on the supers that you get from completing modes that is uh, unique where if you complete the mode that's about ramps you then get super ramps uh, so there's there's even variety in those rewards in in ways that are consistent with older games but but are um are, are new at the same time all right. Uh, dialed in. Uh, any experience on it? I, I played it once at Texas, so I, I can't really say much on it. I got to play a, a number of games on it at uh, Papa Headquarters at Papa 20, and uh, I really enjoyed it. Um, it uh, flips very comfortably. It's fast. It's way faster than Hobbit. 
and um, the the rules and mode design, I, I, I don't have quite the flavor for yet. And uh, but what I found was that the the modes were worth a lot of points, and the feedback that the modes give you is uh, is very good because you have that second screen that, that acts like a cell phone and it, it basically facetimes you in the middle of making mode shots so you'll make yeah. a mode <laughs> shot and, and be like hey blah, 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 blah. and on the one hand it's it's great feedback and and on the other hand it's it can be interfering feedback too because it doesn't tell you what to do next it just tells you hey you did something hey 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 um i don't know how how to get that right uh and they do get it right like as soon as that person shuts up, it, the display, the little mini display changes to tell you what thing you're supposed to do next in the mode. And that the, the big display is also telling it to you at the bottom, which means you don't have to look up as much as you would otherwise. Uh, these are things that, like these, these new displays, like we've been doing dot matrix for so long that these new displays present a lot of issues with what information you convey, how you convey it. And how difficult it is even to create something that that looks good. It's much harder to make an LCD look good than it is to make a dot matrix look good, I think. All right, that's my impression. Maybe it's just that they had longer to do it. Uh, so you get games like you get games like Hobbit or Wizard, where a new player is going to be really intimidated by that display. There's so much information being conveyed that that I don't think there's very much you can get from it. We're on dialed in. I think it's been distilled a little better, and that may just be a uh, manufacturer growing up or figuring out, like, okay, this is what we did the first time. How can we do it better? And just iterating and improving. I think, and that's one thing I think is a lot of the LCDs, and especially I especially noticed it on dialed in, but I've noticed it on Hobbit as well, and this and that is they seem to do a lot for uh, watchers, not players. Uh, with letting them keep up with everything. But I know every time I wa- at Texas that I went past and dialed in and the, like the selfie mode was active. There were people laughing and joking and having fun with it. And the, just the way that lets them play with people who aren't actually currently in the game, I think is a really good addition to pinball all in all. Mm hmm. Uh, in terms of the, the newish games, new games coming out, the only other main one I, I wanted to hit on was find out if you'd had a chance uh, to play Alien Pinball. Uh, I got one game in at Texas Pinball Festival, and the, and that's it. So I, I can't I can't say a whole lot. I th- I thought it was pretty clever, uh, especially you know I'm trying to compare it to Full Throttle, which we did have on location for a while, and it didn't do very well. So they they got it out of there pretty quick. So no, it's too bad. I I've played Full Throttle many times on location. I I love that game. They were having mechanical issues with it. Was uh, I think the, the main thing. Um, I haven't gotten to play Alien yet. I've seen some of the videos, and if I've um. I've read feedback from other players who have played it, and I really like the the, the layout. Feels pretty unique. The the variety of shots, like that those upper flipper shots, are are cool, and the the magnet grabber looks neat. Um, they've got that second display, and they're doing um, they're doing interesting things with it. It's um, I'm very eager to play. Yeah, uh, it has a good look. Uh, in terms of other things, I mean, uh, I don't know if there are any Bowen that you want to hit on, uh, Spooky's Jetsons, uh, Multimorphics P3 systems finally, uh, in production. So I, I mean, there's Lexi Lightspeed or any of the other, uh, sort of mini game setups that they've got going on with that or Dominoes. 
didn't know there there are any there that you that you've uh, played around with and thought, oh, there's a there's a lot lot to work with here. I haven't played uh, I haven't I haven't played Dominoes or uh, Jetsons. I think that they're they're definitely clearly making simple concept games at that point for uh, casual play. Where like in Jetsons, it's clear what you're doing, and anybody who walks up to the game and never played before, they can they can see the spell outs. Um, there's there's sort of a a double edged sword to that that if if your game is is nothing but spell outs. People who are interested in playing and getting better, they they give up on it pretty quickly. And like you were saying, oh, they had the, like, I guess South Park kind of fits into that category. But Lebowski, by comparison, had, had to also has spellouts. But then the things that are behind those spellouts and the the other modes that are available make it a more fleshed out game. I, I did get a game in on Jetsons. Uh, it was harder actually to control than I had expected, given the the simplistic look to it. But but yeah, it was. It very much reminded me of some of those uh, pinball FX two tables that they do on the video game side. Some of those are very prone to doing spell out setups when they do multi packs. It seems so. That's what it reminded me of. But now I know. I know Tony had some questions about uh, back on the t- topic of pinball tutorials for you. I did. I I was just mainly. I know you got such access at Papa to pretty much everything. But I was wondering if there's a game that you haven't done a tutorial yet that you kind of look forward to getting a chance to. Well, at, uh, at Papa headquarters, we do have a lot of access to games. So I think if there were a game that I would really be excited to tutorial on, and we'd, we'd have done it by now. Um, we've been trying to do a tutorial on... Uh, there's a couple of tutorials that just that haven't worked for mechanical reasons. Like People keep asking us for a tutorial on Wizard of Oz, and we've tried. We've we've tried to do it twice. So <laughs> I want to get that done, but it hasn't. Is it machine yet. issues or camera issues or? It's uh, just it's been bad mechanic, mechanical issues. And then, and then, my other question was less of a question, more of a thought of experiment. That I'm going to open with apologies to both yourself and Charlie Daniels, but <laughs> say the uh, uh, the devils decided you haven't done a tutorial on his favorite game. So he forces you to choose one of his four favorite games to uh, do a tutorial on. Which do you do with the choice being super Mario brothers, Viper night driving bugs, Bunny's birthday ball and magic girl. Well, uh, I suspect that if I did magic girl, I, I could at least be done pretty quick. <laughs> oh, wow. uh, so I would probably pick that. Um, Viper Night Driving has a lot of interesting ideas in its rules. It just got, kind of gets it kind of gets hamstrung by that ball. Uh, the ball just isn't the right kind of ball for pinball, and it doesn't feel right to play. But uh, it's not actually a bad game. There were well, do you mean the big the big one or the little one? The big one. Yeah, we had one on location for a while, and I hated. Oh, it felt everything you did felt wrong. It didn't feel right at all. Yeah, and that was their their decision to go with the glow balls uh, is is what happened there. That uh, having those different balls, um, man, it, it well, you know, you know from having played it, it just it just doesn't work. Uh, but if you had the same play fields with a regular pinball, it might have worked gangbusters. And uh, the play field isn't that different than uh, some of the other successful play fields, like uh, GoldenEye, for example, has the same overall structure of, of wide sweeping ramps and uh, modes. Um, and it's a, it's a great game, 
but uh, that game is just a disaster. No, I agree. That's that game was definitely the low light of tournament while it was on play. Yeah, it was it was interesting. But um, okay, so Magic Girl for Speed. Yeah, that. that now, you, which uh, which Super Mario did you mean? We had a blue. Yeah, we had a we oh, had, we oh, had a blue well, cap. Get that. If it's the Redemption game, I'm all in. I want that. That <laughs> game's great. That game is terrific. Yeah. I played the Redemption at Texas Pinball uh, last year and actually thought, oh, that's actually all right. But the, I guess the, that wouldn't be almost as, the big ones almost as fast as Magic Girl because I guess it's just left left ramp all day. But yeah, well, there are there are even some games that uh, we do tutorials on where the strategy you would want to use in competitive play is very clear and and simple and straightforward. But you can't do that when you're doing the video because it's boring. I was like, I'm just going to sit here and shoot this ramp all day. And then <laughs> who would watch that? So we we mix it up. We have to play the whole the whole game and try to show the strategy or show the different the different things, even the ones that are clearly ineffective for uh, playing for score. And I think that's that's one of the things that is we get feedback sometimes on the tutorials about uh, the ways we explain things that. Um, some players don't quite catch on to that, that we need to explain it to, from the perspective of someone who just hasn't played this game at all or wants to learn about the, the full variety of what's available, even the things that aren't uh, as effective. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. And yeah, you I would quit watching if you only shot one ramp all day. So I'm glad <laughs> you don't. Um, those are it for the for the pinball topics. Uh, I did have a little uh, segment I wanted to do because I, I know Bowen that you're, you're, you you kind of like math. You're kind of into mathematics, so I've had a little math section. Um, the first thing is I I know you're really familiar because of uh, some consulting you've done with mathematics in terms of their involvement in game shows. And I was just wondering if maybe you could do a summary for the listeners in terms of the importance of actually using mathematics and coming up with certain probabilities in order to actually make game shows both be successful from a viewership standpoint and successful from a financial standpoint. Yeah. It's, it's much more from the perspective of the, the show creators than it is from the perspective of the, uh, of the player even. Uh, so for example, uh, in deal or no deal, they, they might say, look, we want to be able to give away this much money per episode. And then you have to then construct, okay, what should these suitcases say? What should the, what should the deal offers be like? Um, all these things need to be prescriptively laid out. What my job often comes down to is making estimates for the show about uh, how challenging a game might be to win and then how much money it ought to be worth in order to satisfy both the viewers who want someone to be able to win a large amount of money every time and for the network who wants nobody to ever win a large amount of money ever uh, and that balance is pretty difficult to strike uh, so the, the the feedback I often give includes some um, measure of uh, uncertainty to say I think that you're going to give away this much money but if things go bad or things go good <laughs> it could be this or that uh, um, and I, I've worked on, I think now, maybe a dozen shows, maybe about half of which have made it to TV. The worst show I ever worked on was an um, uh, extreme musical chair show called Oh Sit. Hmm. I don't like the name, but, but go on. And uh, you might think, why would a musical chairs show need a mathematical advisor? 
but um, they need to give away money on this show. So I have to tell them how much money everyone earns by sitting in chairs. Uh, so when you finish the round, everybody has to go to the chairs, and the chairs are worth money. And whoever, not only the person who doesn't find a chair, they're out, but the person who has the least money, they're also out. Um, and building that and simulating it turned out to be a pretty involved process where I would tell them, I would tell the show, okay, you're going to need to tell me how fast people run. And then they, they went and did it. They, they like brought in people to run the, all of their test obstacles, uh, because it was a mix between musical chairs and wipeout, which is a much more popular show. Mm-hmm. Uh, oh yeah. Just, people just yeah. fall on stuff. So imagine wipeout plus musical chairs. That's what this show was. Hmm. I'm, uh, I'm still not really picturing it working. <laughs> yeah. I'm, no, I'm it, it, no, it, it doesn't, it doesn't work. And I have no idea why, what I have no idea why it was renewed for a second season, but it oh, was, this one went to air. <laughs> this one went to air for two years. 20 episodes. How does that oh, oh, sit. Hosted by Jamie Kennedy. I can't believe it even made it to one episode <laughs> oh with that. Um, <laughs> the, the, I, I, the, the real answer is that it was on the CW, so, any, so it, it was fine. Oh, okay. Okay. That makes it all, then it's all clear now to me. Um, but that, yeah, so all of this is being described to me in text pretty much because it's not like I can see this show. It doesn't exist yet. And then when I actually watched the show, my perception of what the show was going to be like was totally different than, uh, than what I thought it would be. And people are running around and climbing over these ice and water obstacles. And then the chairs themselves are in the center of an arena that they all have to to take bridges to get to when the music stops. They're pushing each other off the bridges and uh, falling in because the bridges are obstacles themselves. It's just, just it was crazy. Um, and the mathematical problem I needed to solve was twofold. One was setting the money up so that the show would give away a certain amount of money but look like they were ready to give away more. And also to answer to them the equity question of the chances of men versus women being in the final round as well as winning the show. Uh, because uh, if you've seen Wipeout, Wipeout, uh, often there there aren't uh, very many women winning that show, uh, either just because of the natures of the, the, uh, the types of obstacles they're using, I suppose. Um, and so my job was to figure out what are the chances of a woman winning the show at, or of a, a woman making the final three and um, the, the numbers I came up with turned out to be exactly right, which was surprising. Impressive. Yeah, I'm, I was like, how do you even mathematically figure for something like that, given the differences between people? Do you just use, like, averages for people, how people work? Uh, what's the word I'm looking for? How they, they handle situations or how well they they do or... They, they ran their test contestants through the obstacles, men and women, and they gave me the distributions of how fast people ran. And I then used that to, as a basis for building a full distribution of what it would mean to pull men and women out of a bucket, basically, and say, all right, the show is six men and six women, so reach into the bucket of, of men and bucket of women and pull out six men, six women. That's our show. Now run the show. 
And each of those men and women would then run as fast as it says they're going to run and um, then sit in random chairs. It, uh, it wasn't, I, I wouldn't say it was a completely accurate statistically, but it was the best I could do on a small amount of time. Okay. It's interesting. That's really interesting. Um, a more, a more recent show I worked on was, um, on MTV, a dating show called, are you the one, which is, um, also surprising that a dating show would need a mathematical advisor, but this dating show is basically million dollar mastermind because the show has set up secret pairings of men and women in advance of the show. And uh, the contestants have to figure out the correct pairings. And if they can figure out all the correct pairings, they win. But the show only gives them the feedback of how many pairings they have right on a regular basis. Hmm. So how often when somebody comes to you looking for your help and they ha- they give you a proposal for a game, do you just sit there and look at it and like, what were you on when you came up with this idea? Usually not because by the time it gets to me, it's already gone through multiple levels of uh, thought. So it's very rare that, it, that someone will say, I need a math advisor for this. And... Uh, They've already gone through probably a network and a producer and a production company. Uh, so they there are still some very bad ideas that come to me that I'm like, this is not going to succeed on TV, I don't think. Uh, but I'm often quite wrong about that on both sides, <laughs> where the show that I worked on that I thought would be the most successful never even made it to TV. And uh, some shows that I didn't think were going to be very successful did. I worked on a show last year, uh, two years ago, that I said, oh, this will be really good if it ever gets to TV. And that show is on now, and it's called The Wall. Um, and it, it has been quite successful. That's on NBC. Oh, yeah. I've seen the, uh, I've seen the commercials for that one with the like pachinko-looking thing. Yeah, Million Dollar Plinko. That's uh, uh, Chris, what's his name's show, isn't it? He's on it? Uh, yeah, Chris Hardwick is the host. Chris Hardwick, LeBron, yeah. LeBron James is um, one of the executive producers. And um, they they do a they have a really well-crafted game. So it, it keeps it keeps the viewer interested. There's always stakes. Like even throughout the entire episode, there's always something at risk or something more to play for. Sometimes on game shows you get to sort of these boring phases where you kind of know what's going to happen. And it's a foregone conclusion almost. And the wall never, it never happens that way. Um, I have a, all right. Since, since you're, okay. So you've, you've been used, looked at distributions and such to help determine the, the goals of the, that these show creators often have with shows. So I'm, I'm going to pivot this a little bit on pinball because I, I need your help on this. We know that geometry on, on pinball machines is obviously a major component of how well they play. It is my belief. And I'm right. That, Wide body pinball machines are totally inferior to the standard body geometry, but I need a proof so that I don't have to argue this anymore. Can you give me this proof? No, <laughs> there is no. I was proof. because you're I'm wrong. Afraid. I'm not wrong, but I was afraid that 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 it was just it's too hard. Um. Well, I mean, there are some there are some great wide bodies and there's some terrible wide bodies. You're you were you were half right. <laughs> would you say, for example, would you say Twilight Zone would be better with three inches? Three inches narrower? Sure. Okay. Where? Gotta get, 
Got to get rid of that, that horrid pop bumper section in that huge outline, you know, problem de- dead end zone spot. That's the big issue. I think for most of them is they've got this space down below and they don't know what to do with it. So you either stick in a whole bunch more in lanes or you put in some massive horrid outlane. And I think, I think that's what kills it, but that's just, you know, I just wanted the proof. I just wanted, I just wanted to be factually right. I guess I, I guess I don't get to be. Star Trek Next Gen- Star Trek Next Generation Demo Man Sli- slings are too high. Demo Man, amazing, mach- amazing game, almost as good as Judge Dredd. Demo Man, I think, is better than Judge Dredd, but uh, and is a is a decent white body, but but still, it would have been better as a standard. Uh, okay, Popeye, come on, man. Oh, Popeye, don't, don't. <laughs> I get so much hate on my Popeye dislike. My big thing with Popeye isn't its width; it's that I feel like twenty percent of the time I don't see the ball. I don't know how you managed to see the ball 80% of the time on that game, but congratulations. Because <laughs> I, just, I just trap up and look at it and think, oh, that's what it looks like. I forgot. All right. I, I've, all right. I got, I got a different one for you then. This one is uh, one that was applied on a, a – I'm, I'm staff on a, on a video game site called True Achievements, and uh, this predates me being on staff, and I, don't, I, I work on genre assignments. I don't work on the math on this, but – uh, full disclosure, I, I was opposed to this change when it happened, So, uh, and I'm dredging up ancient history, but uh, the way this site works in a nutshell is it exists to take Xbox achievements, which are things that uh, they, they unlock when you accomplish things in video games, and they wanted to create a system so that they could determine how difficult the achievements are. And the way they do that is, is a proxy with rarity. So the, the old system was very straightforward, and this is still how they do the base games. They take the square root of the gamers who own the game and they divide by the gamers that have unlocked that particular achievement. And that's what gives them their score for how rare it is. So, Oh, and then you square root that you're yes. not saying square root. Right. Okay. Cause the other thing would be wrong, wrong. Would be by wrong. Yeah. It'd be wrong. Right. No. This, right, uh, so that, and this is how they used to handle downloadable content. And the way they determine if you own is if you have one achievement in the game, then they say, okay, you own it. Oh, because they wouldn't see it. They're only seeing your records of your achievements and not your. Uh, not the game won't show up on your profile yeah. unless yeah, yeah, you yeah. unlock that achievement. So it's the it's what they feel. It's the best they feel they could do. And I don't have an issue with that. That's how they used to handle the downloadable content, which are for sale packs for video games that they tend to developers tend to do after the fact, and it's become more prevalent nowadays. Uh, so the way it used to work on that is same same approach, except. They only determined if you owned the DLC, if you had a DLC achievement unlocked already. And then if you did, that that's the population. However, there were people who complained because some DLC packs have very few achievements and they can be all very difficult to unlock. So there was mm-hmm. a lot of concern that there were a lot of people who owned these packs, but they weren't getting tracked because they couldn't unlock any of them. It was too hard. So to solve the problem, the site switched systems for just for the DLC. And the way they decided to do it is they now use the geometric mean of the population to prove if they own, to determine what the count is of the DLC ownership. So they take the population of the main game, the population that they know because they have at least one achievement, have the DLC, and then do the geometric mean of those two figures and say, that's how many people we've decided own the DLC. And so it's the geometric mean of the number of overall people who have the game. And the number and the number of people who have DLC achievements they have at least one DLC achievement, correct? Yeah, that's 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 a total fart. That's that's not right. Okay, I 
you know, I, I wasn't really familiar with geometric means. I'd never used them. Well, because let, let's, let's say, for example, that you have a, a achievement in, the D, in a DLC that's a cakewalk. Like, shoot a guy with the new gun. Boom, 10 points. And, and 90 to 95% of the people who own that DLC uh, have that achievement. Now you, now you look at your, your number. You, your geometric mean will be, will be way above 100%. Of the people who have that game, it's just just completely wrong. Like, for example, let's say a million people own the game, and a hundred people own a DLC, but then ninety nine of them get the all all hundred of them get get an achievement because they really care about it. Now that your geometric mean will claim that ten thousand people own that DLC, and that it's and that it's a rarity of one percent mm-hmm. because that's the geometric mean of a hundred and, and a million. That is ridiculous. The, the right way the, the right way to do this would be to sample to sample individuals uh, from the from the ownership of the game and to ask them whether they own the DLC and in some case in some cases you wouldn't need to ask them because those the people you sampled would have DLC achievements and you would already know the answer but you would need to then ask the other people that were sampled uh, do you have do you have this DLC and most of them will just say no and some of them will say yes and then that's it. Then you you've got your estimate. Okay, I was I was a part of the I was a part of a five person task force that got put together to try and hammer out a, a quote unquote solution to this. I I pulled the specific examples where I had the DLC totally falling apart because I had easy easy to unlock things and it was huge scores. And they put it to a site vote, and no one understood what was going on, and they just knew that the new system would give them higher points. So that's what passed. So anyway. yay points! Yep, that's what, was, that's what it ended up being. I think I don't even think I got twenty percent opposing it in the end because they just inflated the scores on the site so much. But I was pretty sure it was mathematically wrong. I just I needed an expert to confirm it. So Bowen, I I thank you for confirming it for me. You haven't confirmed my wide body dreams, but at least my video game. Uh, nightmares have been confirmed to be real. Uh, I only had one last math question for you. I think this one's pretty straightforward, but I, um, I I mostly do administrative work at this point, but I actually started my career as policy analyst and I still do policy analysis for, uh, for government. And uh, I put together reports, of course, what, what do people want? They usually want the mean. They always ask about the mean. Uh, sometimes I'll have things where people want to talk about medians and that comes into a lot of play for things like dues payment analysis and stuff for, for me, because it's so different from what the average is. But you know, when people are getting their stats one one lesson, they're told the three big M's mode, median mean. Can you explain to me why I should ever care about mode? I have never had anyone ask me for mode ever, ever. Nope. 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 Okay. Good. Um, I, won't, I won't bring it up. <laughs> I will direct you to something I wrote either on Twitter or Facebook recently. No, it was on Twitter. This this was uh, just earlier, um, about three weeks ago. So, can we stop talking in math about mode? Mode stinks. Nobody uses mode. I wish it were not a thing. Wow. That... <laughs> That was pretty. That was pretty blunt. But but what, what what about figuring out the most common girl's baby name of 2016? Because that is not a that is not a um, a numerical data set. That is a categorical data set. In categorical mm. data, you have family feud mode. You have categories of things, and then you look for the number one answer because you can't. What is the mean name of babies? It doesn't make any sense to ask that question. It's Jenna. Nor Hannah. does it. Nor does it ask. 
nor does it make sense to ask for the median baby name of 2016. <laughs> okay. Okay. That's okay. So that I mean, that was the only instance I could imagine someone would argue would be something like that, but yeah. Um, I won't, I, and then my follow up was that is that, that right now my job, I write math curriculum and we are writing curriculum that meets the, the common core state standards, which is, um, the, the standards that most states in the, in the country have decided to adopt. They're very good standards. They're high quality. They make it clear what to do every year. They do not mention the word mode once in the entire standards for K-12. All right. Well, I guess that's definitive then. And they mention mean and median quite a few times. Well, those are very useful. Those are very useful. Those are great. Um, mode is disastrous. It And... What, what happens is students then, when they're introduced to these things, mean, median, and mode, they mix them up. And then the next year, they don't know which is which, and you have to teach them all over again. And it still doesn't work because, I don't know, it's, it sucks. Mean and median have value, very big value, and mode has no value. What's the mode income in the United States? Who cares? <laughs> Right. I, don't, I mean, yeah. the answer right. is the, the answer is zero. Oh yeah, that's I was I didn't even think about trying to solve for. It. Oh yeah, that's right because of kids. Yeah. Um, but even no, even if you only include adults, the mode is still zero. Oh really? I guess I guess that would make sense because you have somewhere on the order of four point seven to what six and a half percent of the population, depending on state, that is unemployed. Yep. And so, what value does that give us for overall information? Not very much at all. That's why you put people in the categories of uh, ranges of income and not uh, uh, and not specific numbers. And you can say which is the, which is the most common category. That makes a lot of sense. And at that point, that is a little bit like mode, but it's not mode. Mode is stupid. All right, excellent, good. I won't ever have to bring it up again. <laughs> uh, well, we're at the end of the show. So, I, Bowen, I want to thank you very much for coming on. We really do appreciate it and lending yes, your expertise, do. both in pinball and mathematics. Sure, man. I want to know what the mode length of your show is. <laughs> Probably not anything, because I don't think we've ever had any uh, land exactly the same. I once got within four seconds, I think. But now that that means they're all the mode. Oh, okay. They're they are all. All are one and and one is none. Anyway, for those that want to contact me about anything other than the mode, you can email the show, eclecticgamerspodcast at gmail.com. You can also reach out to us on social media. Uh, Facebook would be facebook.com slash eclecticgamerspodcast. We're available on Twitter and Instagram as eclectic underscore gamers. And Bowen's contact stuff in terms of uh, the Patreon uh, is in the show notes. The Poppy YouTube page is in the show notes. The Tilt Through Pinball Podcast, which is the best competitive pinball podcast, in my opinion, that's on the air, is in the show notes. So go ahead and check those out. Uh, They're really good pieces of content. And uh, until next time, I'm Dennis. I'm Tony. And goodbye, everyone.